Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist, calling you from the road tonight. I'm north of Indianapolis. So hello <laughs> to our Indianapolis friends out there. <laughs> oh, I made good friends in Indianapolis last I year. Know I, you, go back I know there. you did. I bet they'll have you back. That's as far north as you go, Indianapolis. <laughs> Not true. I went to uh, your You went to old... the region. You went to the yeah. region. You did. Where was it? Crown Point or that where Maryville. you Maryville. I went That's to Maryville awful. and I went to Fort Wayne. Yeah, so I don't know. North of Geography's not my bag. I'm not sure which is further. I think maybe Maryville's further north, but I you know I too. just like to tease you about doing all the southern locations because I'm a northerner at heart. But, you know, my only criteria for going somewhere is if I can get the names, if I can get pediatric therapists who work in early intervention programs, I'll go darn near anywhere. It's just happened that Always the places, southern. And every yeah. time I say, okay, if we have a northern listener, get on the stick. We need to represent someplace more north. Uh-oh. Are you there? Yeah. I clicked. Keep I on going. Went you're, on, you're in rare form tonight, aren't you? <laughs> I'm not going into that, but yes, I guess I am. Okay, I'll leave you my joke off on this time. I just would like you to go north. But this is not the time of year to be thinking that, so you'll have to plan it for when it gets hot again next summer. Spring and summer, yeah. That's but, you right. know, speaking, speaking of conferences, let me say where I will be this fall. Okay. What um, southern location I- are you hitting? <laughs> Charleston, West Virginia, on September 15th. Yeah. And then, yeah, that's still southern to you, isn't it? Of course. Uh, Dallas, Texas. Actually, it's Addison, which is a northern suburb, on Wednesday, October 19th. And then Shreveport, Louisiana, on Friday, October 21st. And those are all south of Louisville, aren't they? They definitely are. Although, Texas, I'm not sure that's south. That's separate. That's Texas. That's a place into it, unto itself. Well, the I've been talking to me. I've been talking to my friends from Texas this week, and let me tell you, they all sound more southern than I do. Really? So I think this little midwestern Louisville. You know, lots of people here think about Louisville as a midwestern town rather than a southern city. So I yeah, know, I'm, I'm thinking I don't sound quite as hick as I used to. So I wish you could talk to them. Boy, you would really have some things to say, wouldn't you? And see, Bill, my <laughs> husband has lots of family there, but they're all raised by. I mean, they were their parents are from Illinois, and so oh, even yeah. though they were born and raised in Texas, they don't really sound very southern. If you know, they maybe have. You sound a like your parents. Accent, yeah, 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 not really that much of the accent. So I guess I don't know any native right. Texans. Well, and actually, I was talking about people that were originally from Mississippi, like me, and I guess they just oh. haven't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't really hear your accent anymore. I, I've become desensitized to a southern accent. I kind of it all. You used to really make fun of me too. for that I, when we first <laughs> became friends. You teased me, oh, all the time. <laughs> Do you remember I that? Said, uh, no, I don't. I always said you had a very pretty accent, you, and you said that's because you sanitized it. You cleaned it up. Yeah, I did. I include mm-hmm. G's on the ends of words, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Johnny's giving me the move it move along, along side. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I did want to mention something on Facebook's, uh, my TeachMeToTalk.com Facebook page. Yesterday I found... Something that's so supportive of something we talk about nearly nearly every week on the show, and that whole philosophy of can't versus won't. And this is a psychologist that has, uh, she did a short little video, and then there's a little article with the three steps that will help parents separate willful disobedience versus a true skill deficit. And I loved it. And so I posted it on um TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, and I don't want to really talk about that a lot tonight because I think we should do a show about it. But I wanted Ooh, to really mention cool. it. Yeah, and it's 
pretty common sense to us, I think, because we we do this all the time, live it, breathe it, and we talk about it all the time, how to really determine whether a kid is just being bad versus he really can't do what you've asked him to do. And, I, I you know, that is so near and dear to my heart because of how much I love to talk about receptive language disorders and how they're so overlooked, even in our friends that are late talkers. And you would think that people would just make the assumption, okay, if he's not using very many words, he must not understand very many words either. But every week we talk about how receptive language issues are really, really overlooked. And so I thought this was just a really cool illustration of that. And, again, it's uh, by a psychologist. It's not even someone in – and she works with older kids. She doesn't even work with toddlers. But the steps, and even though her examples apply to older children, they are still relative to what we always talk about and, and our philosophy. So I wanted to point that out and Listeners can take a look at that, but I hope that we'll do another show on that in another week or two because I don't think we could talk about that nearly enough, especially when we're talking about it in the sense of educating parents because, again, so many parents just take for granted that their kids understand what they've asked them to do, and then if a kid's not following through, they assume that he is being bad or that he's trying to push their buttons or he doesn't want to do it versus he doesn't know what the heck you're talking about. So these were three easy steps, and I think it will be really uh, fun to talk about that. So that's just a little tease for an upcoming show. Sounds cool. You know, it also comes out, Laura, when parents – and this one even surprises me more, when parents think kids are choosing not to talk, you know, like, right. you, won't, you won't say it. And yeah. I was Mm, I'm pretty big on correcting. Uh, that's more like he can't say it. He can't you know, say it. These are kids who are basically nonverbal, and they'll say he yeah. won't say it. And it's like, uh, I think if he could, he would. But anyway, I know. And now, when a parent says or when a therapist says, "Well, he'll talk when he's ready," I say, "Yeah, when he's developmentally ready." And then I go into my whole thing about when he has the cognitive skills to support it, when he has the social skills to support it. You know, go into my conference little spiel there, you know, because they're really using ready like, again, it's a choice versus we have to get all those prerequisites in place before those first words happen. Yeah. So, yeah. ready. (laughs) Developmentally ready. Yeah. (laughs) So maybe we'll review that when we're um, talking about that article. So that will be an upcoming show in the next couple of weeks. And then I wanted to mention something that I forgot to say last week, but I posted it uh, the week before last on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page. It's an article from, I think it's from IU. And, Kay, you have current connections. Which so means you know IU. it has to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Only yeah, one more hey, year. My, my baby's going to be a senior there this year, so we have to start last year. It. I know it. Well, yours will be next. She'll be going off to college as soon as you blink. I know. I hate I know. to tell you. So the last couple of years with her at home. I know. I don't want to get emotional and start talking about that. But anyway, the, there's <laughs> a great article uh, from IU, and it's early detection. And it's advice for parents who suspect that their child might be on the spectrum or have autism, and it's a checklist for things that parents should consider and, more importantly, do to help uh, initiate services and get things moving in the right direction. And so many parents get so um, locked into that initial stage of denial or fear, and they almost don't want to do anything. They just want to hunker down and protect their baby and not go for help and all of those things that are not productive, but I certainly understand it. Um, And having not really lived that exact same scenario, I, I can't say that I know how they feel because I don't, but at the same time, early Action is what's really, really important, even if you just suspect it. And even if your only concern is he's a late talker, these words aren't coming, even if that's all you think it is, the earlier you can get services, the better, especially if it does turn out to be more than just late talking. So that uh, article is on there as well. And I thought I would mention it because I don't think I mentioned that last week. Do you remember me talking about that? I don't think I did, no. 
I don't think I did either. So that is on there too. But moving right along, unless you have other announcements, Kate, do you? No, I'm good. Okay. Okay. We then will move along to what I think might be the final show <laughs> about stages of play. This is part three of this series. We have talked about how play evolves and develops in a baby's the second half of their first year from six to 12 months. We talked about that two weeks ago and the really important cognitive processes that are accompany play at that point and how we can really use play to measure where a kid is cognitively. And that's important to those of us who work with children with communication delays because children have to meet those cognitive prerequisites before they're developmentally ready to talk. So if you have no idea what I mean by that, please go back and listen to show number 123 and we'll update you on that information there. Last week, we talked about core play skills, and this is when a kid really starts to use objects functionally in play and how that very early pretend play develops when they're using real objects. And We spent lots of time giving you great examples of how you can use toys to facilitate that kind of play during therapy sessions, and that's show number 124. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go back and listen, because tonight everything that we talk about hinges on those prerequisite skills. And children are not ready to advance to these more um, complicated ways to play unless they've mastered the previous types of play. So this is, again, what I think will be our final show about this. And I got an email from somebody that asked me the reference for this um, information that we're using, and I really think I got it from Patricia Hamaguchi's presentation, and Patty and I just are online acquaintances. She sent me a really nice email when my DVDs first came out because she ordered them and uses them in her practice, and we just email back and forth occasionally, and she does presentations all over the United States, and I just think I got this information from one of her presentations. So that's the best I can do on a source as far as that's concerned. You don't remember me ever attributing this to anybody else, do you, Kate? You know, Laura, I did notice not long ago that I had something about stages of play based or favorited on, on you know, my computer. Uh-huh. And I, I, let me go back and, you know, check out what that was and see if it was related okay. because it was, it's definitely related to a podcast, but I'm not sure. It's, you know, it looks like from what it says on there that it could be this, but and I don't know. So I don't okay. know. You answer it. Well, all right, that'll be good. Well, anyway, I'm just going. I don't think it's. It may not be her stuff. She might have pulled it from somebody else. But Patty Hamaguchi is my source on this. Okay, so tonight. We are starting to talk about how kids play when they are developmentally around 24 months and all the things that happen when kids start to be the ripe old age of two. And again, we're talking about that developmental level, not necessarily the chronological level, because we, in early intervention we all see two-year-olds who really are developmentally 12 months old, 15 months old, 18 months old, you know, the reason that we're seeing them in early intervention is because there is a bona fide delay there. So even though your kid may be uh, technically two, he may not have reached this cognitive level of maturity yet so that his play reflects these things. And the the big thing that happens when a child is developmentally two as far as play goes is he starts to play symbolically. That means that he uses one object to stand for a different object, and usually this starts out with objects that are similar in shape. And everybody has seen a toddler, even if his parents are really, really careful about not introducing toys that are violent like guns, almost every two-year-old little boy that I know will pick up a stick and pretend that it's a gun and start with pow, 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 and or using a spoon like that, or even his finger uh, to represent that, even if he's had very little uh, exposure to that, and that often freaks moms out when that happens. They think they have a serial killer on their hands or something, or say, oh, I've never, I've never let him play with that. I don't understand how, how he thinks that's a gun. And really, it's 
a cognitive process. He's <laughs> he's using his the beginnings of his imagination. So that's a really, really important thing and kind of a cool thing to look for when a kid starts doing that. We've talked about in the last couple of weeks the kids that might pretend uh, something is a phone. A banana could be a phone. They might use the remote control like a phone. What are some other examples, Kate, that you can think of um, for this um, early symbolic play? Oh, just things that they use. Um, yeah. Hmm. I always just put you on the spot like this. I know, and the big one is the phone. And I've certainly seen the boys with the guns, but let me think yeah. about that. Um, I guess I've seen some various objects used as a toothbrush with the baby doll. I'm trying to think more of a girl theme here. What's the the uh, replacement? You know, what do girls do that? It, sometimes girls will pretend other things are babies. They might pretend mm-hmm. that, you know, just wraps like a pillow is their baby or something and cradle it like you would a baby doll and kiss it and laugh and say, my baby. Macy used to think, you know, who's now 15, used to think that was hysterical when she was two to pretend like anything was a baby. She would wrap things up in a blanket and say, look at my baby and then show it to me and it, you know, would be a shoe <laughs> or something. And she thought that was just the biggest joke ever. But I love it when kids get to that stage because you think, gosh, her little brain is advancing. She, she's learned this. She's learned that it doesn't have to be a direct representation for her to pretend. And that is so important for language because words are symbols. And kids aren't developmentally ready in the truest sense of the word until they to talk and to to really use language until they've mastered the early phases of this symbolic um ideation. So it's a really really cool and important cognitive level for kids to achieve. So what do you do when you don't have a kid who's doing that? You introduce that sort of thing in play. You pretend that one object represents another object um, and, and model some of that so that a kid can see that. And it's it's funny when a kid is not ready to play like that, they'll let you know because he'll look at you like, I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> or walk away or just have a blank look like I don't get it. So you'll know if you start to do some things like that when it, when a kid is not ready. I have a, a situation or an example of this. One time I was the replacement therapist on a team, and it's a little set of twins, and I felt and they were both qualified for services, but one was on the spectrum and one was not. One was just a late talker. His comprehension was fair. I mean, he had some delays too, but one little boy was globally delayed and again probably has gotten a spectrum diagnosis and their previous speech pathologist would put their socks on her hands or on their hands all the time and try to pretend like they were puppets and the grandmother would say those boys never got that they they were just not into that. They didn't understand it. Even when I would try to show them, you know, I would take them to a toy store and show them, um, you know, this fancy toy, that fancy toy store in uh, St. Matthew's. What is that mm-hmm. called? Play things or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I even took, yeah, I even took them in there to show them the real puppets, and I took the sock off his foot and tried to do it, you know, right beside <laughs> each other. She said, and he still had no idea. <laughs> what she, what I was trying to do. And so, again, that's an example of you may be introducing that kind of play and showing a kid that kind of play, and you may be able to facilitate that, but sometimes unless he's really cognitively there, he just he's not going to get it. He's not ready for that yet. Uh, but it is an important... I mean, occasionally, if I'm seeing a child for really just communication issues, say the child's uh-huh. a practic, I might get a two-year-old who is there, but generally I'm thankful if the two-year, you know, say 24-month-old children I see even get the, the functional play where it is, right. the, you know, the shoe and it is the toothbrush and it is right. the hat and they understand the hat goes on his head and the shoe goes on his foot. And this is, well, you know, this is a big step beyond that, where you're using something unrelated 
to represent right. something else. Mm-hmm. Right, and the and the grandmother's other comment was, I don't want them thinking that they should put socks on their hands. I'll just be happy <laughs> when they can help me put socks on their feet. Yeah. And those little boys were not ready for that. Even the little boy that just turned out to be the late talker still had some comprehension gaps that prevented him from really getting that right at two. So, again, you want to want to look at that and look at what a child a child is ready to do so that you can uh, meet him where he is when you're playing but it's really cool when this symbolic stuff starts to happen so the first thing that you would look for with this level of intermediate play would be that a kid can use one object as a substitute for another um and again this happens all the time when you're doing more um theme-based play, like uh, with a baby doll, uh, a kid might, I've seen children use a block to pretend like it's a cup, and they'll, you know, pretend like they're drinking from the block and offer the block to the baby. So that would be uh, something that, that you might see with that, just that early symbolic representation of another one object represents another object. The next level of play that you see, and again, this would be closer to the two-and-a-half-year-old developmental level, is when a kid strictly pretends to use an object that's not actually present. So he's pretending to shoot a pretend basketball, or this other example that I have written here is play an air guitar, or um, you'll see some a kid that might pretend to push a stroller or little boys pretend to drive a car what they're pretending is invisible and again they had this listed at two and a half to three years i think it's closer to three years just based Mm -hmm. on personal experience what do you think about that i would have to agree although like i we said my our opinion is it's hard to remind yourself that we do see kids that are delayed and so you know I don't work with a typically developing population. But, yeah, in my opinion with my kids, I don't really see it before they're discharged. So I would definitely go with closer to three. Yeah, and and I'm looking at it on one scale. I have several different things in front of me. I'm looking at Carol Westby's information about play and the – and then this, the other author that's credited with this is Weatherby, and it's written on my original um, information here is credited as 1992, and then I went back and wrote Carol Westby 2000, so it looks like I've updated it in my own little system of files that this was still the information that they were presenting. I think this is from a KISHA conference, a Kentucky Speech and Hearing conference. Let me look. Yeah, the first one was in 1999, and it looks like I might have gone back and written some additional notes maybe, I guess, later using it as um, the same reference there. But it says pretends without an object for a prop at three to three and a half years. So I would tend to agree with that. So we may not see this kind of play in early intervention on our caseloads at all unless, like you said, Kate, the classic example is working with a kid that's apraxic or just has some intelligibility issues, but every other thing is in place. You know, they're trying to talk and their comprehension is great and their cognition certainly is is where it should be, but we're just working on that expressive language and articulation. So we might see some of these things in those really what we would consider our stars on our caseload, our higher functioning kids. We might see this kind of thing. Okay, the next area of play or the next step in this kind of intermediate play is that a child would start to sequence actions with the same figure or doll. And the example that I have listed here would be they pretend to brush um, the baby's teeth so that they get the toothpaste They pretend to put the toothpaste on the toothbrush, and then they brush the baby's teeth. And I do see kids that are at that level a lot. And certainly you can facilitate that sequencing in play by introducing that and saying, oh, let's get the cup. Let's pretend we'll pour the milk. You know, and I usually have several bottles or cups there, and, you know, you're going to do your like you're pretending to pour the liquid from one 
drinking cup or bottle to the next one, and then you give the baby a drink. And again, I might have the kid try to give me a drink, and you want him to sequence all those actions in one uh, in one sequence of play so that he's realizing that there are steps. And the reason that this is so important with language development is when you do reading about this, until a kid can do that cognitively, he's not really ready to combine ideas. And until a kid is ready to combine ideas, he's not ready to combine words into phrases. And if you think about that, that makes so much sense from a developmental perspective. But I bet lots of us, it's kind of that, oh, I didn't realize I knew that, or I guess I knew that, but I didn't know that I knew it, or you know what I'm trying to say with that. <laughs> right. Like, and it makes yeah. sense, but we never really thought it through that level. I mean, I'm, right. I would fall into that category. Like, oh, yeah, that does make perfect sense, but I never really <laughs> drew the connection. But that's why it is so important to think about a kid as a whole. And I think it's especially important for our kids that have that play might be their strength, maybe their only strength. <laughs> um, and our, some of our little friends on the spectrum fall into this category. And it's so funny. You'll describe kids this way to me, Kate. You'll say, oh, he's on the spectrum, but, boy, he's a good player. He can really, really uh-huh. play. And so you think, okay, that that foundation is there for him to use language because he already can connect ideas and play, and if he can do that, then he's really going to be capable of being able to connect words to make phrases too. So I think it's a real important distinction. So what does that mean for us, for our kids who aren't connecting those sequences in play? It means that we need to build that comprehension level or that cognitive level first so that we start to see that maturity or that maturation process in their play before we expect to see it in language because it it rarely ever happens the other way around unless um, I, I can always, as I say these things out loud, I can always think of the exception. It would be What's maybe a kid, that, <laughs> a kid that's echolalic that is just repeating verbatim what he's heard with no real understanding of what he's saying. Right. You know, a kid that can rattle off a whole a whole paragraph or a whole um nearly a, a you know, whole song without realizing what those words mean. But even that you'd have to you know, you'd have to say, well, he's really not communicating on a functional level. He's just parroting right. back what's heard and it may be a phrase or a paragraph or whatever, but he's really not right. using it for communication purposes, so. Right, and a therapist wouldn't miss that, but a parent really would, because how many times oh, do you yeah. see children who fall into that category, yeah, and who say, you say, is he talking? And they'll say, oh, yeah, he's talking, um, but he's not, and they go on to say, but he doesn't really ask me for what he wants, and he can't really answer any questions, and then you dig a little deeper and say, well, what does he say? And she'll say, well, he can count to 20, or at night, when we're reading his favorite book, he says the whole darn book without really giving um, any other indication that he understands and processes lots of language. So that would be the, be the exception with this play thing. But other than that, I can't really think of an exception where we would hear language that's more advanced than a kid's play skills. And now I'm thinking, except for, <laughs> I'm driving myself crazy. I'm just having a whole conversation with myself here. Maybe if you had a kid whose motor skills were so, so, so impaired that cognitively they were still intact and then language-wise they were intact, but motorically they were pretty impaired. And I've only had maybe a couple of those kinds of kids in my whole career because usually if those motor skills are delayed, you know, we we Think of that more as a global delay because for me to see them and for you to see them, they would have also had to have cognitive and language delays too. So we we generally see those kids that are more, when we're talking about this, more globally delayed. And the two kids that I'm thinking about, one was a playgroup kid, and she was there because she had lots and lots of anxiety about being away from her mother and being being around other people, but her language was pretty good. And then I had another kid, oh, gosh, a long, long, long time ago that his mom and I started to really figure out, okay, he's he can't even show us that he understands this stuff because his, he can't move his little body. But more often than not, we're going to see that cognitive maturity and cognitive development be there long before we see those language skills start to emerge too, especially in the kids that we see. Right. So that's the point that I was trying to make. 
All right. Exceptions. It's the rule. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it is amazing, especially with those kids with all those global or those kids with those pretty severe motor delays. A lot of times, parents and even therapists will miss that cognitively those kids are lower functioning because they do just give them credit even if they can't um, see them demonstrate that they understand a skill. And so I've started really telling myself, okay, I can have really high hopes for a kid. And as we always say, Kate, I, my glass, you know, I can have the rose-colored glasses on and still be super positive and, and but unless we see a kid do it and unless we see him demonstrate it, we don't really give a kid credit for those kinds of skills because in our minds he has to really be able to demonstrate that. We're not going to fall into the trap of constantly expecting him or thinking that he understands way more that he can show us because when we do that we make our goals too difficult and we end up frustrating ourselves and the parents and the kid. <laughs> and so when we get in the habit of saying, gosh, I need to be pretty darn objective about this and I still, I'm still going to be positive and I'm still going to expect the best outcome for this kid, but I've got to know that he's mastered these kinds of play situations before I'm going to give him credit for having met those cognitive milestones or language milestones. Does that make sense? I think it does, yeah. Yeah, and I was on a team of a little boy like this a couple years ago, and I show his um, therapy, show some footage from his therapy sessions in the conferences. And I always give the example of he had, you know, really young parents, grandparents on both sides of the family, even some, you know, great grandmothers. Lots and lots of people who loved him, but they really thought they could put him in front of the evening news, and he understood every single thing when he was really, really severely and globally delayed. His motor skills were, um, you know, that was a real struggle for him because he had cerebral palsy, and he had a stroke when he was three days old, and he had to have bowel reconstruction and just all kinds of physical issues, too. And he did have a little bit of a social spark. So because of that, especially those grandmothers really didn't want to believe that he didn't understand every single thing. And so to really say to them, uh, we still need to work back at this really simple level of play, you know, they thought I was nuts because they felt like he understood much, much, much more than he could say his or demonstrate that and his physical therapist felt that way too but it's because she loved him she fell in love with him and she wanted to believe too that he understood those things and was really ready to use some augmentative systems and really ready to do all kinds of things developmentally that he he just wasn't ready for and so sometimes it's hard to really really explain that and and it does happen i think too a lot with those kids with pretty severe um, motor issues. I got an email about that this week about how, what do you do with those kinds of kids? How do you adapt, um, adapt your situations and adapt your therapy materials? And you know what? We can talk about that in just a minute because Kate, we have a caller. Oh yay! All right, I'm going to put her on or him or whoever okay. it happens to be. Hi there, caller. Hi, how are you? I'm good. good. How, are you? how are you? Good. I'm so glad that I could talk to you guys. It's, I'm calling from New Jersey and it's storming like crazy. And I just arrived home and said, Oh my God, they are on. I have to call them. <laughs> well, good. Yay. Yay. Um, okay, so tell us, tell us about you and then go ahead and ask your question. Tell us your name. Well, my name is Jane, and I live, as I said, in central New Jersey, and my son is 29 months old, and he was diagnosed with autism since he was 18 months old, uh -huh. and um, we've been doing um, early intervention since um, before them, because I first started early intervention, then I got him diagnosed, and, and also he does um, OT at the hospital, and he's going to start uh, speech, and... Okay. And um, he has receptive and expressive language disorder. It's one of the disorders from the spectrum that he was diagnosed. Uh -huh. 
and also sensory processing disorder and a feeding disorder. Um, and you guys have been talking a lot about the stages of playing, and I guess you guys talked a lot about that, but he just now is starting to want to speak. But as I said before, I don't count as language because these words that he's speaking doesn't come naturally. They mostly now work as prompts, and then he would say, He's starting to want to speak by himself. Like every time we say something, he kind of say the ends of the word. Like right. if we say, do you, do you want to eat? And then he says, Tuh. you know, Tuh. okay, do you want to this? And then he says the end of the word. He's trying to repeat a lot more in the, you know, with the DI people. Uh-huh. And my question is, um, we just came from um, appointment with his neuropediatrician, and she said that we're probably going to start with him with facts, and because it shows that he's really strong with visual things. Um, he uh-huh. knows how to match things really well, doing puzzles, right. but my, our concern is that and actually we just increase the service, because I request them to increase the service so we can work on what you guys are talking today, the skills on playing, because he's very... As an autistic kid, he has a resistance to pretend playing. Yeah. And I would like, you know, some ideas. I'll, I'll give an example so you can understand that. Like, I just bought this retired set, and I don't know why they retired this, this toys, but from Fisher Price, that is a little playground set. Uh-huh. So I bought the I bought a swing and I bought a slide because yeah. <laughs> I want to buy things that he recognizes, he knows right. because he goes and play and you know like and I bought a school bus so you know and I I'm I intend to buy the little house that they have um, just right. some budget for that but um, so I I have to confess we didn't have a lot of pretend play toys because we first were so into at least let's get his you know his um, our finger skills plays better. Let's get his matching better. Let's get so we have right. all these kinds of puzzles. And now right. that he's 100% <laughs> on that, they are saying now we have to start to work on the pretend play. And I'm like, okay. Right. So, so but every time I go to the set, okay, let's let's go down the slide. We and he says actually we, but uh-huh. then 30 seconds later he runs from it. He doesn't want you know, to call him again. He cries. He's just so resistant. He's so resistant. It's yeah, let me ask you this, me. Jane. I mm-hmm. would start with things that we talked about last week. Did you listen mm-hmm. to last week's yes. show? Yes, yes. I would mm-hmm. start with those things. And remember we talked about how before children or how all of this play is really related, and it's all sequential, meaning that, the first kind of play has to come before the second kind of play, and that has to come before the third kind of play. So yes. I would back up to the things mm. that we talked about last week where you are okay. really having him use objects that make a lot of sense, mm-hmm. like a cup and a brush and a hat. And um, help me out, Kate, what are some other kinds of things that she could do a like shoes, that? A backpack, a ball, whatever prop that he's yeah. very familiar with. Mm, yeah, and okay. I would back up and do that kind of stuff. Now, does he have a favorite, um, he's a boy, so he probably doesn't have a baby doll, but does he have any stuffed animal that he likes? Or no, he's very, he's very resistant to animal, plush animals. He, the only thing okay. that he really loves is Thomas, that's it. It's what, Thomas? Thomas. Thomas. We're oh, very familiar with that personality. Yeah. We have lots yeah. of Thomas toys. We mm-hmm. really do. But you know what? I would still take that train, and I think we mm-hmm. talked about this last week. Sometimes our yes. little friends will only start to do this sort of pretend play when you take their very favorite character. And it may not make much sense to you to take a a sippy cup and pretend to make Thomas drink or take a spoon Mm -hmm. and pretend to feed Thomas, but that you do it with something that he already loves because Mm -hmm. that's what hooks him into wanting to play with you. Now, will he do anything like that, or has that just been too weird for you to even try? (laughs) 
No, I, 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 I can't say anything. I have no problem with that. Um, I, well, what I would try with that. Is that we would give him the Cheerio and we would, you know, on the book, like the little ducks on the book, I say, oh, feed the duck, and then he started to find the Cheerio. But I think, I don't know, in my mind, it's like, I'm going to do that, so they stop asking me that. Was putting the Cheerio, like, okay, okay, I'm done, next page. Okay, 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 I'm done, next page. You know, like putting the Cheerio on the mouth just to, like, yeah. leave us happy. But, you know, that, but that's probably, he's just not probably there yet with books yet because mm-hmm. to him books are strictly probably still visual, something that he wants mm-hmm. to really look at. And so for you to interact yeah. a lot with the book, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to do that because you're re- if, if he's resistant to um, play, he's probably resistant to new ways to play too. And so in his mind, oh, yeah. he's just supposed to look at that book. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to be feeding the Cheerio. <laughs> to the duck. Mm -hmm. So I can totally imagine him that not making very much sense to him and or him even getting mad that you're doing uh that. The O T said we should buy because of his feeding issues disorder, Uh we should buy a baby. And then we could start actually he's gonna start next week uh, feeding therapy with a O T at home. And the O T is another T before that said you should buy a baby and you know pretend play with the baby of feeding. Right. Do you think he's ready for that? Because sometimes I'm like, like we were just on Target before I'm calling, and I was showing him the baby on the store, and he was putting his hands like, I want nothing with this baby. Yeah. You know. <laughs> he, he was you know, and that's really common. That's really mm-hmm. common because developmentally he's he's not there yet. You know, he's mm-hmm. just not there yet. He doesn't understand yeah. Why in yeah. the world you would want what in the world you would want him to do with that thing yet? Yeah. You know that's yeah. just not meaningful to him yet. So what I would do is really start with Thomas because he already yeah. likes it mm-hmm. and he can already do it. And so just even if you don't have lots of little pretend baby accessories, just use what you already have. Use one of his sippy cups. Get a plastic mm-hmm. bowl. Get one okay. of his spoons. Get one of his hats. You know, get, um, I know Thomas doesn't have hair, but get one of your hairbrushes and say, we're going to brush Thomas's hair. And even okay. if it's a little bit goofy to you, it's okay because it starts the whole process of I can use these things that I understand what they are, but I can use them in a different kind of way, and that builds that whole symbolic piece in. And again, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I'm going to say that I'm brushing Thomas's teeth with this <laughs> silly toy train here, it doesn't have to make sense on your level for it to be the beginnings of play. Kate, you agree with but- that, don't you? Absolutely, and the good thing about Thomas is that at least he does have a little face on, you know, on the front of the train. So, yeah. you know, use use a baby wipe like you're going to wash. Um, any normal activity of daily daily living, we nurses would say, can do with the Thomas, just like you would a baby doll. And she's right in that because he loves Thomas, I think he'll be much more inspired and, and interested in doing those things with Thomas than he would a baby doll. And the important thing is that you're able to engage him and not completely turn him off. The more you do it and model it and encourage it and you're animated and playful about it, if you're using Thomas, your odds of hooking him are so much better. And I would use that the play stuff that you bought, the swing, the slide, the bus. Put Thomas on the bus. It doesn't matter. Put Thomas on Uh the slide. It doesn't matter. Uh He's going to be way more interested if... if Thomas wants to go up, 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 and wee down the slide, then if the little yeah. characters came with it. I mean, if I have a kid who loves SpongeBob, you better believe I'm using SpongeBob. If uh, You know, some kids are much more open and flexible, and you can use what you have, and other kids are like, if it's not something they love, it just doesn't interest them. It, you know, you've really kind of got to meet him where he is, and if Thomas is his thing at the moment, then I would definitely use Thomas for all of those things. Because also he's very resistant to new toys. Like for example, I bought this right. um, Melissa and Dog house that has the, you know, the ring a bell for open the door and has a mommy, dad, and I think a daughter. Um, right. It's a wood, you know, house. And mm-hmm. he wanted like he has very resistant to new toys. He cries. He doesn't want to see them. He doesn't want to touch them. 
and is very, very resistant. But, if, but, for example, if you say to him, let's play Play-Doh, let's play a puzzle, he can be with you on the table for like 20 minutes. Because uh-huh. he's good at that, Jane. He's good at yeah. that. So that's why he wants to do it, and that is his previous experience, and that all makes sense yeah. to him. This mm-hmm. new stuff that you're inter- introducing, I would use Thomas with all of that. I would make Thomas ring the doorbell. I would make Thomas knock on the door of that new house. I would put Thomas in the house. I would put the little mommy and daddy or girl or whoever you have and let them ride Thomas. I would let them yeah, give right. Thomas kisses. You know, I mm-hmm. would do all of that and really use Thomas as your bridge to introduce like Kate said, anything that he seems a little bit resistant to in play. And over time, after he's had enough experience and after it's fun, then you'll you'll be able to take Thomas away or not have Thomas be such a big part of that. But I use that strategy all the time with kids like you're describing that he is, and, so, and it's but okay. Then the, the thing would be using Thomas even with the toys that we got. Then at least he get used to the toys also or no, just. I didn't catch that. Did you are? No, I didn't understand. Uh, I did not say that one more time. I say, uh, for example, I bought a school bus, the little little people school bus. So could uh-huh. I use Thomas there so he get used to the bus? Or no, I don't even introduce that right now. I would put Thomas in the bus with the other people, put the Mm -hmm. other people in, and then say, Thomas wants to go, too, and let Thomas climb up the door and, you know, Mm -hmm. in the top. And that's how you'll get him initially interested in playing with the bus. You might have Thomas push the bus along, you know, in the back, usually kids that are on the spectrum really like that visual pattern of lining things up. So if you have Thomas behind the school bus pushing it, anything like that, and, you know, what you're doing there is somebody might call it scaffolding, meaning that you're using one thing that he really likes and that he's good at to help him learn to like something new. So you're taking his strengths and using that so that you can introduce new skills. And it might take three or four weeks or months before you're able to pull Thomas out of some of that play, but that's okay because mm-hmm. you're introducing that higher level of pretend play, but you've got yes. to do it in a way that's fun and exciting or, like you said, he has no interest in it. He's even, you know, you've characterized him as resistant, so you've got to approach it in a different way. Yeah, and another quick question is more in the future thing about the doll thing. Because of his office, I always think he seems has to be more realistic because he, right. you know, children in the spectrum, they see things as they see in front of them. They have a right. hard time to pretend, like saying, oh, this is really a cup, but it's not. Right, you know? right. So right. I, I just saw the store now that they have, I don't know if you guys know this, and this is not for now, it's just for later, but they have now this doll that they call Baby Alive. Have you guys seen that? That she Baby actually Alive, yeah. Eats, <laughs> eats the food and the, the mouth opens and she poops and she pees and... Yeah. And I thought, I said, my husband, maybe this is more visual to him. It's kind of creepy, but. Yeah. I was going to say, I bet he might freak out a little bit. I mean, uh, not you can the tr- sounds. I would not use the sounds, but I mean, the fact that you can put the spoon inside and she can actually yeah. eat the food is more realistic to him as an autistic kid, as a baby yeah. that is there, paralyzed. You know, you cannot right. put the spoon inside because, you know. You, you know right. Right. I don't know. You could Maybe certainly try it. You could try it, but keep the receipt. So if he hates it, you can take <laughs> it back. Well, he always going to hate any of them because I told one of the cheaper babies very, and he was like, I know. Plain, I, I'm not going to yeah. buy a baby right now, but it's just like yeah. I was thinking that more realistic parts would be better for them on the spectrum. I don't know. And. And it might. It might. You're not really going to know until you try. But I tell you what, I would not mess with the baby yet. I would do all of these things that we've talked about with Thomas and really get him Mm -hmm. used to doing those play schemes or play themes or however you want to call it. And then Mm -hmm. later you'll be able to introduce another thing. Now, I mean, it might be instead of a baby doll, you might get an Elmo or get some other character, you know, if he likes um, whatever. 
yeah, Dora, get a Diego, get a Diego doll or something that might be a little more um, appealing to him. You'll just have to figure out what happens. And I I always tell parents to let their kids kind of look at it in the store to see if there's any little hint of interest. But you're right, you may have to buy it and introduce it and reintroduce it and use it and use it and use it and let the doll sit on the couch and, you know, be in his room so that he becomes familiar enough with it to want to play with it. Yeah. But I would start all those things with Thomas. I would, um, the next time that you're going to play with him, have, you know, pretend, make make Thomas go to sleep, you know, lay, you know, just put the train on its side and say, shh, Thomas is sleeping, you know, pat, 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 and then do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like one, two, three, wake up, wake up, Thomas, and then you take the train and shake him like he's suddenly awake. You know, those little games. Um, we were talking about pretending, letting Thomas pretend to eat. You know, put a little plate out or a bowl, and you take Thomas and do, mm, 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 oh, Thomas eats. You know, and again, it may seem silly to you, and it may seem like it's unrealistic, but that's the way that you can get him to start to be interested yeah. in that kind of play. Okay. Yeah, I want you to call us back and tell us how this works because I'm betting that if you are fun (laughs) and if you keep doing it a lot, he'll he'll come around on that because I've hardly seen a kid who is cognitively ready for that kind of play not respond when you use something that they like, when you're really, really fun, and when you keep at it. You know, he may not like it the first time. The first time he may barely look at you and then walk away. But if you, again, yeah. keep it really animated, keep it really silly, and more than likely he'll uh Yeah, it kind of frustrated us in the beginning. I had to deal with my frustration because, as I said, I get so excited that I get him to stuff and I go play with him and he doesn't care. He runs from me. He yeah. goes to the foot and jump <laughs> and jump and jump. But, you know, I keep yeah. doing it and I'm going to do what you guys said and I'm going to, I think that's a great idea and I'm going to try and definitely going to call you guys back. Thank you so much. That sounds good. And, Jane, do you have Have you uh, been to my website, teachmetotalk.com? Have you seen any of my DVDs? No, but I will. It's on my wish list to buy. Okay, we're good. We're waiting but, the budget for that, but we're going to well, buy. Well, listen, listen, listen. I want to thank you for calling into the show. So will you email me your address so I can send you Teach Me to Talk as my gift and my way to thank you? Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Really appreciate You're welcome. That. You're welcome. It's Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at teachmetotalk.com. And you send me an email, and I will pop that DVD in the mail to you. Oh, thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You'll be modeling a lot of that that, uh, play stuff that she talked about. But I think you'll find you'll be much more successful if you keep it playful, animated, and fun, and include Thomas. I can't tell you how many kids. I've, and usually it is exactly Thomas. I've had a few SpongeBob yeah. kids, but mostly Thomas. And uh-huh. if you'll do all those things, the same kids who really balk or resist a baby doll, if you include Thomas, all of a sudden you see a little twinkle in their eye and they're like, you mean Thomas can eat? You know, you go, yes, yeah. Thomas can eat. I mean, they, that's very intriguing when you're taking the one thing they really love and right. introduce those concepts. And as Laura said, once you've got him on that and he's consistently enjoying that, it's so much easier to raise or other little characters or other baby dolls, whatever it is you're going to use. Really, after mm-hmm. for him, it's all about Thomas, but Thomas can do all those things. So I think you'll see. I think you will too. Kate, your guys. connection isn't great. Did you, you're echoey. Okay. So I think we're losing Kate. Uh, but try those Kate. things with Thomas Jane. And I want you to call us back in a week or two yes. or send me an email update and let us know how those are, things are working for you. I will for sure. I really appreciate it. And you guys have helped me so much. Thank you so much. Oh, good. Again. Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yay, that was great. I'm so glad we have a caller. Um, I think we've lost Kate. She, her call was sounding pretty broken up, so I'm hoping that she'll call back in and join us for the last few minutes of the show. Yeah, and I think we mentioned that on last week's show, too, when we were talking about that 
when if when children first start to use those functional objects in play, you have to pick something that, that they're interested in. And like this mom said, her kid's not a bit interested in baby dolls. And so we asked her the question to figure out what he would like. And you might have a, a, kid, with a, a kid with a different set of circumstances or a different thing that he likes. Um, I do that sort of thing all the time with other characters. Uh, we mentioned if a kid likes. Kate, I think you're back now, aren't you? Right. Yeah, that, wasn't that a great caller and a great question? That was a great question, and I know she'll have success with that because, woo, I have I used that principle yeah. to no end. <laughs> yeah, and I think we even said that on last week's show, just kind of in passing, and, you know, right. that's certainly something we want to make sure that therapists are aware of. You don't always have to introduce something brand spanking new, and the kids that are so resistant where, again, sometimes you misinterpret that as that they're bored or they don't like it or blah, blah, blah. Usually it's that it doesn't make sense. It's too complicated. So you have to meet them with something that they already like and that they already know before they're willing to try these kinds of play, these new kinds of play things. So I can't wait to hear from her because I think she's going to surprise herself. Um that mom that just called, and have good luck with that. I hope so right. anyway. I think so. I know yeah. that one is a, a truth because yeah. I see it all the time. It's amazing <laughs> yeah. how kids, the same darn thing she tried to do with the baby doll, if you'll use their thing, they just light right. up and say, oh, I mean, maybe not for 20 minutes, but at least, and then early on, you know, for her, for Jane and her little boy at this point, she would have to take anything that wasn't a flat-out resistance and, you know, yeah. getting upset. And if he's just standing there kind of watching silly mom see Thomas, that's a success initially. Exactly. You know, so. And even if it's just 15 seconds, just right. a brief pause and him not ripping Thomas away or not walking away would be success. And I would say to her if I were working with her in person, you know, goal number one met. He looked at us for 10 seconds. He didn't just totally blow us off. So sometimes it is very incremental progress when you're measuring um, those initial interests with kids and, and what they'll let you do, especially since he's had he's been resistant to those kinds of things in the past. But I think she's going to be pleasantly surprised. I'll be surprised if it doesn't work, if she's fun enough and persistent enough. And so when she emails me, I'm going to reinforce that and give her some other ideas that I would use with Thomas because I think I have some of those things um, in the therapy manual and I can um, copy and paste some of that stuff and send it to her to give her some ideas. Right. Sort of you were thing. very generous and gave her the DVD so she'd be able to see some of it, if not with Thomas, at least how animated and playful and how right. you engage him in play. And, you know, right. sometimes just if if she's not already doing that, just using that more animated, yeah. playful approach can go a long way. And if she uses his favorite Thomas, her odds are much better to get him much, to stay much with better. Him. Yeah, and so I wanted her to be able to see that, and I didn't know if she had the DVD or not. And actually, Johnny was slipping me the note saying, ask her if she's bought the DVD. Give her the DVD. So that was our executive <laughs> producer's idea. But you were just talking about last week. We had not had a caller, so I know. I know. That, <laughs> that and, you know, good. I also wanted to say that um, here's her. She said her little boy was diagnosed at 18 months, and that's, more and more common, although we still hear here in Kentucky that there are still folks who think that's hard not to diagnose, diagnose a child with autism. So there's a lot of uh, variability in when kids are diagnosed, and certainly it's getting younger rather than later. But there are yeah. there's some resistance. Some people are more resistant than others. Some still say three. And, um, well, and this is the thing. This is the other thing. Some children are more um, clearly cut to be diagnosed on the spectrum at 18 months than some other kids. Some other kids that maybe didn't have as many markers wouldn't get that diagnosis at 18 months, whereas a kid who, you know, and she didn't really talk um, a lot about his history, but she said, you know, there's a receptive delay, the expressive delay, 
his sensory, sensory issues, issues and his feeding issues. issues. Yeah. yeah, it sounded like he had so, a lot of the red flags associated with autism. But, Laura, still there are some who have are pretty classically autistic, and then there are some quote-unquote experts who say not until they're three, which I'm not I saying I approve of it. I don't. I, I'm just right. saying there's still some variability. variability. Yeah. Yeah. He happened to well, go to somebody who felt comfortable diagnosing him at 18 months. So. Well, and here's the thing. There are people who would, there are states, unlike ours, that are pretty generous with that diagnosis. And some kids, sometimes there may be overdiagnosis. And a kid who really isn't or doesn't clearly fit into that diagnostic category might get Overdiagnosed, and and we certainly um, our friends who were in Ohio tell us that happens. Uh, when I was in Atlanta, people said that there was an over, you know, a big proportion of kids being overdiagnosed there. So I guess it goes both ways. Usually the pendulum swings one way and then back the other way before it settles where it should be at that just right spot in the middle. But we are not there yet with autism. Right. So we'll and then- see. And. And speaking of that, I got a link from um, a person on a listserv that I visit that uh, she shared a great article that had um, diagnostic indicators, or I guess that wasn't the word. I guess it was more, I don't remember exactly the terminology, but it was how to really differentiate autism versus just language delay, and when to really use the word late talker versus refer kids on uh, for the spectrum. And again, Kate, this is, again, it's one of those situations where you read an article and say, yeah, that's exactly how I feel about that, but I might not have ever said it in that way. It was that kind of article. And so I hope that we can do a show on that in the upcoming weeks, too, and then I'll be able to post the link to um, to the article that, that references all of that because I think a lot of therapists really struggle. Is he really on the spectrum? I think he's borderline. This may just be more a receptive, expressive language delay only versus other things. And so it has some other areas to look for. And one of those is play. When kids have really more advanced play skills, um, you might look at that and think that, and again, there were some other markers there too, but it, I, I thought it was a great article, and so I'll send that I'm to you. I'm going to struggle but, with that, that show, Laura, because I feel like the longer I do this job, the less the less convinced that I am of my own opinion, and this is not something I would necessarily share with the parent, but just, is he, isn't he? Isn't he on those kids who are less classic, and you know, yeah. and parents will ask, what do you think, and Sometimes my answer is it would depend who evaluated them. And I hate that. That's one thing I really struggle with right. on the you know, diagnosis is sometimes it really does come down on those more borderline kids. And um, that's exactly what this article talked about. What mm, kind well, of prognostic indicators would let you think even, you know, which way should we lean on this kid? Or should we just be talking about this as a language problem or should we look be looking at more of a global uh, umbrella diagnosis like a kid being on the spectrum and I thought it was good information and it wasn't any and there was not one thing in there that I disagreed with which is why I liked the article so much because you know how I well, can tease things out because I need some clarity <laughs> on that I struggle with it all well, the time I, anymore. Well, and I think everybody does. I think everybody does. And I think the other thing is, I alluded to this at the beginning of the show, it's because we wear those rose-colored glasses a lot and want the best for kids a lot. And the other thing that we do is you really do make such intense connections with children sometimes that we're not quite as objective as someone might be if they were meeting that kid for the first time or two. Right. Um, and and the other thing that some of our kids really do, even if they are on the spectrum, is they really learn our therapy routines. And because we do a lot of the same things, that's what they crave, that regularity and that predictability. And goodness knows we're predictable on some of those play things. And so they do our therapy routines 
um, pretty well. And, and so that's that, true, Laura, but even in addition to that, there's the variability of experts among psychologists. Among, oh, yeah, and I'm know, not disagreeing with groups. that. And, and it's like, well, yeah. is he or isn't he? It depends sometimes, not always. Right. Sometimes a child would get a diagnosis regardless of where he went. But for those less exactly. classic, more borderline yeah. kids, it's very difficult when they could go to one expert and they say he's not, and then they go to another right. expert and they say he is. And yeah, and I totally like, agree with that. The answer is it would depend where he went. And sometimes you know? it's the day. I mean, sometimes it is the day. If a kid has a horrible, horrible session, you think, oh, my goodness. And then the next week he has the session of his life, and you start kind of questioning, oh, my goodness, what's going Maybe on not. here? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we could talk ourselves into oblivion with that kind of thing because it is still so subjective. Right. And from person to person and even in yourself, you know, right. even, in, in, even in one person. So, yes, we have plenty more topics for podcasts just on that one subject. <laughs> <laughs> but it's never-ending. Oh, well, that was fun to have a caller. I'm glad Jane called, and I hope she has luck doing the Thomas thing. I really think she will. I think she will, too, and I can't wait to hear back from her, and that'll be really, really interesting to see her, uh, what she reports. That sounds great. All right, we did not finish up the play stuff tonight, and that is okay. <laughs> Come on. Well, I guess we got a caller, so at least it wasn't just us blabbing on about It wasn't just nothing. us. Next week we're going to finish it up, unless we have a caller, and that would be optimal. I will just keep this topic running, but it's so important. It is important, important information. And, again, I got several emails this week that said, I've really enjoyed this uh, topic on play. Thank you for presenting it. And then they would ask another question, too. And I sent you one of those, and we didn't get to talk about that tonight either, and we'll talk about that in Well, how about the, the one future. where you said, the one said, this is funny, the one said, I'm, and I didn't know that we ever said this, but if I did, I apologize. It was probably me since I seem to be the one with loose lips. Something about I'm one of the crazies who listens to it when I work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those who are working out right now, keep going. Pump, pump. Pump, pump, pump. <laughs> and we I don't think I ever said one of those. working out. Yeah, I don't think I ever. I think we said it was crazy because they were listening to us and we think it's funny. But anyway, yeah. I thought that yeah, was that cute. Yeah, that was funny. I thought it was cute, too. I did. So keep going. You can do it. Go, 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 go. <laughs> All right. We are at the end of this hour, the end of the show. So we're going to wrap it up, and I hope that you'll uh, join us next week where we may actually finish up this series. And if not, that's okay, too, because as everybody knows, we are just happy to talk and talk and talk a subject to death. Oh, and send me that link, Laura. I really want to read that. I will. I'm going to say okay. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.